You're listening to Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, episode 31, Jorge El Padron. Life Story Trail of Trees is a tribute project started by Springfield businessman Jim Malden in the early 2000s. Then, more than a decade later, the project reached Friends of the Garden at Nathaniel Green Close Memorial Park in Springfield, Missouri. Black gum trees were planted in 2012 at the northern edge of the park and symbolized the legacy left by ethnic community leaders. Each tree stands for an Ozark citizen who has left a lasting positive impact on their community through service, generosity, and tenacity. Each story is maintained and immortalized by a story keeper who has volunteered to ensure the legacy of the storyteller lives on. to the United States as a college student, marrying in Oklahoma, raising our family in Springfield, Missouri, and giving 43 years of my life to research and teaching in an American university, I am happily as American as my wife, children, and grandchildren. But I am so proud of the heritage given to me by my Cuban family. Small accents of the Spanish language remain in my speech, and I revere the memory of my mother and father in our Cuban home. It speaks well of my parents, brother, sister, and other relatives that they were able to meet enormous challenges and changes when political circumstances forced them to leave Cuba and successfully rebuild their lives in the United States. Since 1959, Cuba has been under communist rule. I will not visit Cuba until Castro is no longer in power and Cuba is free. I know that under the shadow of communism, Cuba's spirit and vibrance have changed. Advances in education, development, and artistic expression, and even the natural resources of this beautiful land, have diminished and fallen away. The Cuba of my childhood was very different. I hope to portray some part of it through my family's history and my life story. Cuba is a beautiful tropical island in the Caribbean Sea, only 92 miles of open water from Key West, Florida. There is a relatively easy route of access between Cuba and the United States. Most of the island, which is roughly the same size as the state of Tennessee, is a rolling limestone plain with widely separated mountain ranges. Luxurious royal palms cover the island. The average annual temperature is 75 degrees, so there is a year-round, frost-free growing season. Everything about the island is desirable in terms of climate and terrain, and the island is rich in natural and mineral resources. Politically, Cuba has an unfortunate history of trouble. The United States actually freed Cuba from Spain in December of 1898, and held a military occupation in Cuba until the Republic of Cuba was established in 1902. Through the Platt Amendment, the United States held the right to intervene in Cuban affairs until 1934, when the amendment was abolished, and Cuba was left to its own resources and reserves. In 1933, Fulgencio Batista, the idealistic stenographer for the army, 
led a sergeant's revolt that replaced the government, which had been headed by the erratic leader, Gerardo Muchado. Batista remained near the center of power and was elected president of Cuba in 1940. Constitutionally unable to run for a second term, he was replaced in the 1944 election by a member of the opposing Autentico political party. Unlike ex-presidents in America who are guarded and protected, a deposed Cuban leader is a political misfit in his own country. Batista went into exile in Florida and waited six years for the political change of tide which brought him back to power. With the help of his Democratic Party and supporters, he moved to the head of government a second time in 1952. This time, he suspended the Constitution and made himself chief of state. Although social advances were made during this period of time, particularly in the area of public education and literacy, Batista's dictatorship grew unpopular and there were stories of corruption and terrorism associated with his power. After seven years of Batista's rule, the political ground was fertile again for revolt, and the revolt took shape under the leadership of Fidel Castro. Batista fled Cuba on January 1, 1959, and a week later Fidel Castro became premier. In spite of the U.S. hopes to the contrary, it quickly became evident that Castro's new regime was communist-controlled. All foreign-owned property was nationalized, as well as all major Cuban-owned companies. Newspapers were suppressed. Castro began to build an army ten times larger than Batista's, justifying the military increase with his radical warnings that the United States was planning to invade the island. Life, as it had been in Cuba, was out of control and out of control of its people. By the thousands, Cuban citizens became refugees. Among them were my parents and many members of our family. Life in Cuba as a communist-ruled country was no longer possible. The Padron family's long and close association with Batista, his government, and his family made it even more threatening to remain in Havana, and there was only one choice to make a new home in a new country. Fortunately, the United States was friendly, somewhat familiar, and only 92 miles away. My name is Jorge Luis Padron. I was born in Matanzas, Cuba, on March 7, 1931. My parents had a love story. I know exactly how they met. The young men in the province of Matanzas went to church to look for girls. The young ladies sat in the pews, and the young gentlemen stood in the back. As the girls either came or left the church, the young men could see them. Of course, each girl's head was covered with the traditional mantilla, but this did not prevent young men and women from making eye contact if they wanted to. My mother and father met just in that way. Mother was 15 years old and my father was 18, and their families were in similar circumstance. Both of their fathers had died in the flu epidemic of 1918. Once comfortably supported by strong and able fathers, both families had been emotionally and financially affected by the loss of their father. The typical Cuban woman of that era would have been trained in household skills and culture, but not in ways that earn money. A family that lost a father could suddenly become very poor. Both my mother and father went to work at age 15 to help support their families. My father worked in a bank, and my mother worked for the government. On the day they met in church, they set a course for the rest of their lives. 
My mother always said she chose my father in the beginning and never looked at any other man. My parents were married six years after they met. When my father, Dr. Adriano Padron, finished his veterinary training, he was able to support a family. My mother, Emilia Maria Sadrines Padron, was 21 when she quit her job to become a wife and mother. I was my parents' third son. My oldest brother, Adrino, was six when I was born, and Carlos was four. When I was two years old, our family moved from Matanzas to Havana, the capital city. My father was selected to be the head of the National Veterinary Service. Like a number of young professionals, he was selected to replace an important officer of the former government. His government appointment provided a home for us in the midst of a large military camp. Like the other officers' homes, our stucco house was painted white. It was rectangular with four bedrooms. The windows were protected by green wooden shutters that would be closed against the beating of a tropical storm or even a hurricane. Our home was so near the water that we could hear the constant sound of the ocean and feel its cooling breeze. I have sincerely missed living near the ocean. I remember the smell of the sea and also the excitement of seaport activity. The island of Cuba, with its approximate 2,300 miles of coastline, is intrinsically connected to the sea. In spite of hair-raising stories of tidal waves that swallowed entire villages and storms that capsized fishing boats, I was a child who dreamed of becoming an officer in the Merchant Marine. For many years, Havana was one of the world's most prestigious and attractive tourist destinations and cruise liners, and frequently brought tourists to the harbor. I recall people on big boats throwing coins to the Cuban children who were diving in the harbor. It appeared that the children were in need of money. I felt sorry for the children and began to realize that not all families had the same opportunities, lived by the same rules, or had the same expectations. I knew that my family was fortunate in that we seemed to have everything we needed. Our comfortable family life was enriched by the climate and the year-round availability of delicious tropical fruits, which grew all around us. There was also a richness among the personalities of the members of our household. Everyone seemed to view the permanent residence of two widowed grandmothers and an uncle as completely natural, and there was no trouble in the household related to their living in the house. In fact, it was just the opposite. Every day, my mother went about her household activities, singing romantic songs, and sing to the interests of her large family. She was beautiful and very loving. She was generous and especially attentive to the needs and thoughts of her children. The household was both peaceful and structured in its daily routines. No one in the house, including the cook and household servants, questioned the fact that my father was the absolute boss of the house. He was an equestrian and a sportsman, a stately and serious man with high expectations of himself and his children. Eventually, he developed opinions and views as to the careers that each of his children should choose. His strongest values and greatest hopes for us were related to the pursuit of education and making a success of our lives through our careers. He was a scientist at heart, always making use of his university training. Even though he kept hunting dogs and knew how to play tennis and polo, my thought in childhood was that he was always working. 
His acquisition of an important pharmaceutical firm in 1939 was an opportunity created by world events. World War II was underway, and Germans everywhere on the continent were suspect. Many German-owned companies in Cuba were nationalized, including the Schering Pharmaceutical Company. Rather than letting a successful business be dismantled, my father was able to step in and keep it operational. The pharmaceutical house produced and sold many necessary vaccines, cough syrup, etc. My father's relationship with Batista and his position as an army officer made it possible for him to acquire and operate the company as a private enterprise while he also continued to serve the government. When my brothers and I were old enough, working at the company provided summertime opportunities for spending money. The extremely high importance that he placed on education may explain why no routine household chores were assigned to the children. Our job was to learn to be good students. Academics came easy to me. Bebo, Olga, and I were generally in favor with our father as we were all good students. Carlos, on the other hand, was frequently in trouble for bringing home only average grades. Carlos was and is a brilliant artist. Daily life at home was pleasant for all of us. The day always began with breakfast of bread and butter, cafe latte, and oatmeal. Our babysitter, more like a governess except she didn't live in our house, walked us to our elementary school and returned for us seven hours later at the end of a typical school day. After school, there was a merienda, a refreshment time at home not unlike the British custom of afternoon tea. The family dinner was served at 8 p.m. with everyone present. Born in the Majorca Islands, my paternal grandmother had a name of Jewish origin, Carmen Tora. She was an elementary school teacher for 50 years. A widow when she came to live with us in 1933, she occasionally spoke to me of my grandfather, a sugar plantation manager who had been born in the Canary Islands. At every opportunity, she took pleasure in using her knowledge and skill to make games of teaching me geography and astronomy. At a very young age, I knew the names of the capital cities of the world, and my grandmother had already begun teaching me about the spiritual nature of ourselves. She impressed upon me the enormity of the universe and how much there was to learn. She liked to tell me that even though she was older than me, we had much in common, because our spirits do not age. Carmen liked to hold me on her lap, something she had done with neither of my brothers. With a grandmother who brought vitality to my mind, a graceful mother who was the heart and soul of a loving home, a sister whose cheerful spirit always gave me pleasure, it was easy to understand the appreciation that I gained for the feminine sex at an early age. At the age of six, I was enrolled at the private Columbus Elementary School, I believe that my elementary education was very good, as it seemed to provide an excellent base for my high school education at Candler College. I had no difficulty learning the subjects in school, in part because of the values that were continually reinforced at home. We were taught to be responsible. We did our homework studiously. We never left the house without permission. We were to avoid any activity that our parents considered a vice. Of course, some of these activities, such as playing cards or gambling, were quite interesting to spirited children. On the occasions that we disobeyed, we were sent to bed for an entire weekend day. Gambling for pennies was fun, but not worth the Saturday we spent in our rooms. 
The family's religious heritage is, as most Cubans, Roman Catholic. My father was less attentive to the matters of the church than my mother, but we were raised with a firm belief in God. The religious holiday that we celebrated was Epiphany, the January 6th church festival commemorating the coming of the Magi. In terms of celebration, children's birthday parties were the most fun of all, always with traditional piñatas and games. When I was 12 years old, I took a remarkable trip with my lifelong friend Ruben Batista, the son of the Cuban president. Ruben lived only a few houses away. He was 11, 16 months younger than I. The year was 1943. Batista, knowing that his presidency was coming to an end, decided to take advantage of his resources to give his only son an extensive tour of Cuba. He carefully planned the summer trip. Because Reuben and I were such good friends, I was invited to go along. On the departure day, we stood together on the runway, dressed in white linen suits, dark ties, and hard safari hats, trying to appear more confident than we really were about our first airplane flight. The twin-engine military plane took us to the eastern end of the island. This was the beginning of a month-long adventure that basically involved touring the width and length of the island and then returning home. We were accompanied and guided by two trusted military officers. One was the secretary to the president, an important man in charge of Batista's correspondence and his library, and the other was a trained valet who saw to our needs, whether we were in a hotel or a military camp. We took many side trips, sometimes riding in military vehicles, and sometimes being flown in a single-engine Ford airplane. As the trip progressed, I began to grasp the power and enormous influence of Reuben's father. Neither Reuben nor I had carried money at any time. Everything we needed was provided, and kind attention was given to showing us the country. My teenage years were a wonderful time. I was a student at a private Methodist school, Candler College, and I enjoyed my growing independence. There were many Americans living and working in Cuba, and it was to my father's credit that he recognized the need for his children to learn English. Candler College provided my English instruction as well as a solid preparation for an entrance into an American university. Learning English was not easy for me. Unlike Carlos, who seemed to have a better ear for music and language, I had to work diligently to acquire a new language. By the end of my senior year, however, I had begun to think in English as well as Spanish, and I could converse in English without thinking about actual translation. It helped that some of my classmates were English-speaking Americans. Although I wasn't big, I was quick, coordinated, and strong. Sports became an important part of my life as soon as I was old enough to play. I spent many summer days playing tennis and swimming at our club, always enjoying the company of other teenagers. I also played amateur baseball in some extremely competitive fields. As my preparatory education in Cuba was nearing an end, I began to seriously consider a college choice. The American teachers at my high school encouraged me to think about attending a number of American universities. I graduated from high school, second highest in my class, and on the recommendations of my teachers, was offered a full scholarship to Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma. An exciting future was beginning to unfold. In 1948, I experienced a great loss. 
My grandmother, Carmen, died. At 17, I was young, high-spirited, and enthusiastic for life. The future was pulling me away from my childhood and away from Cuba, but the loss of my grandmother closed a chapter of my life that had meant a great deal to me. I would not experience loss of that magnitude again until many years later, when my mother passed away. The most rewarding aspects of my life have happened to me as a result of study, work, research, and the relationships that I formed in America. On a full scholarship, I enrolled at Oklahoma Baptist University in September of 1948. I had mixed feelings about leaving home, but my family and friends were excited about my opportunity to study in the United States. My parents accompanied me on the trip from Havana to Shawnee, Oklahoma. We traveled from Cuba to Miami by plane, took a train from Miami to New York City, and a bus all the way from New York City to Shawnee. In New York, my parents bought the winter clothing that they understood I would need during a Midwestern winter. A cold winter was not something I had experienced in Cuba. My parents and I enjoyed the trip together. At OBU, I was assigned a dormitory room, enrolled as a science student, and began classes. I was not exactly the most typical freshman at the university. I was Cuban, in Oklahoma. There was not another Spanish-speaking native in sight. My English skills improved immediately. Socially, my tendency was to be outgoing and gregarious. As one of only two students at OBU from a foreign country, I became something of an attraction. The campus community wanted to know about Cuba, about my life in Cuba, and about me. I was enthusiastic about conversation and happy to make new acquaintances. Most of the social activities at the university were related to Baptist student organizations, and since there was not much of anything else to do in Shawnee, Oklahoma, I became a Baptist. Returning to Cuba during the summer and school vacations was a much-anticipated pleasure. I could spend time with my family and socialize with good friends in Havana. During the time I was an undergraduate student at OBU, there was a young lady named Dorothy Busha living in Council Hill, Oklahoma, who had graduated from high school at the age of 15. Dorothy was energetic and eager to become a university student, and she would enter OBU just as I graduated. I received my Bachelor of Science in Chemistry in 1952 and immediately began graduate study at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. Within two years, my master's degree in microbiology and biochemistry was completed, and I had begun doctoral studies. During these years, I was working on my Ph.D. from 1954 to 1956. I was also teaching mathematics, chemistry, and organic chemistry at my alma mater, Oklahoma Baptist University. In the fall of 1953, while I was away from Shawnee, Dorothy Bush's parents agreed that she was ready to leave Council Hill and enroll as a freshman at Oklahoma Baptist University. When we met in 1954, Dorothy was a full-time student with a full-time job. Dorothy's job placed her in the front office in front of the university president, the first point of contact for visitors to the president and vice president. I had to pass her desk to see anyone in the office, and she was beautiful. I often visited the vice president for academic affairs. There were professional reasons for my visits, of course, but going into the office and greeting Dorothy 
had become so pleasant that we made plans for our first date. Our second date was a dinner date, and we had a delightful evening. In that same year that I met Dorothy, my oldest brother Bebo died of meningitis in Havana. He had suffered debilitating effects of the disease for some time, but somehow his death still came as a surprise. My parents were heartbroken, as were Carlos, Olga, and I. As a graduate student in Oklahoma, I was balancing a heavy teaching load with the completion of my doctorate. Dorothy and I were together, but sometimes apart. She was being groomed for a career in government, probably as an assistant to a political figure or a diplomat. I dreamed of a faculty appointment in a fine science department. By the spring of 1957, Dorothy and I knew that we would marry. We wanted to be together, even if that cost Dorothy the opportunity to live and work in Washington, D.C. And if we were married, I needed a permanent position. OBU offered me a contract, but I had been at that school since 1948 and felt that I wanted a new opportunity. My future showed up as a phone call from Dr. James Finlay, president of Drury College in Springfield, Missouri. I did not hesitate to accept Dr. Finlay's invitation to meet with him in Springfield. I began teaching chemistry at Drury in the fall semester of 1957. I immediately loved teaching at Drury and felt inspired by its remarkable tradition. But there was one thing I needed to be truly happy. My separation from Dorothy was actually dangerous. On two occasions, I nearly fell asleep on the highway driving to Oklahoma to see her. Our wedding date was set for November 21st, and we visited each other as often as we could. In December, following our November wedding, I took Dorothy to meet my mother and father in Havana. She was already acquainted with my sister, because Olga had attended OBU in 1956. Dorothy was excited about her first trip out of the United States and eager to meet my family. She left Missouri in a tailored suit with a white mink collar, obviously dressed to make a beautiful first impression. The sun was shining in Havana when we arrived, and the day was hot. Certainly no climate for wearing fur. However uncomfortable she may have been in her winter suit, Dorothy's warmth and charm suited the family. Dorothy met the gracious and gentle woman who taught me how to love, and she admired the handsome and powerful figure that my father has always been. That was the first and last time we visited Cuba. Our first home together in Springfield was on Walnut Street. The neighborhood was serene, and we loved our apartment. A year later, we moved into a house at 1543 South Fremont because our first baby was on the way. Anne was born on September 27, 1958. Her arrival was one of the happiest occasions of my life. I was thrilled to have a baby girl and decided right away that if we had more children, they should all be girls. I sent Dorothy red roses and visited the hospital at every opportunity. Preparing to bring Anne home on a cool fall day, I turned up the heat in the house to make sure the new mother and baby would be warm and comfortable. As soon as we arrived home, Anne began to cry. Neither of us had any experience with babies at all, but we tried everything we could think of to calm her. Nothing made a difference. We grew more and more concerned. Finally, in fear and frustration, Dorothy called a friend, June Steinbauer, who promised to come right over. June immediately sized up the situation. 
The baby's too hot, she said. The house was too hot. Anne's blanket and clothing were too hot. Anne was not ill, just hot. We learned that some problems have simple solutions and began to rely on common sense. Charles Louis arrived on November 12, 1960. We had a perfect little girl and a perfect baby boy. Another significant event took place in 1960. That was the year that my family left Cuba and moved to the United States. While my father's connection with the Cuban army had benefited him in 1939, it came full circle and cost him dearly in 1959. Because he had been an army officer under Batista, Castro's government held him under house arrest for nearly a month as the malevolent nature of the dictatorship began to be revealed. Seizing the first opportunity, father gathered the family and got everyone out of Cuba. My parents were in their late fifties at this time, and the move basically meant they would be starting their lives over again. Fortunately, father's training and professional reputation resulted in his being hired to work for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This work took my parents to Washington, D.C., where they lived for 20 years until my father's retirement. Philip arrived on November 3, 1962. Dorothy and I were happily back in St. John's Hospital to welcome our beautiful third child. In preparation for each new baby, we had moved to a larger house, but this move felt different from the others. The house was at 3905 South Broadway and was brand new, in a lively new neighborhood. Horace Mann Elementary School was just a few blocks from our front door. By the time their new brother arrived, Anne and Charles had already settled into their new home. Before Philip was two years old, I applied for and received my first Fulbright lectureship. Dorothy and I were too young and too enthusiastic to fear any difficulties with taking our entire family abroad for an entire academic year. It was an enormous opportunity, and a career move that took me into the international world of science. My Fulbright lectureship was to take place at the University of Seville. Before our departure to Spain, I flew with Philip to Washington, D.C. to visit my parents. Dorothy packed at least twenty big suitcases, with the clothing and articles that were advised the family should need in a temporary Spanish home. Anne, Charles, and Philip were five, three, and one years old. Our year in Spain was their introduction to the size and culture of the world. We sailed from New York City on the SS Independence, and nine days later arrived in the Spanish port of Gibraltar. Everyone fared well on the voyage except for Charles. He was terribly unhappy. He wanted to go home to his room, and he cried for his record player and books. The lectureship at the university provided great stimulation for me. I was happy to be working with colleagues on an international scale, and the professional experience was all that I hoped it would be. While I was concentrating on research and teaching, Dorothy was managing a Spanish home where three beautiful American children were growing, and two of them were learning Spanish. We returned to the United States, a family broadened and changed by our experience in Spain. We picked up our lives in America, pretty much where we left off. I was teaching and researching, Dorothy was teaching at Southwest Missouri State University, and we were watching the children grow. In 1965, I applied for and was awarded a second Fulbright, this time with the children four, six, and eight years of age, 
we prepared to spend the 1966-67 school year in Ecuador. We rented our Springfield house to a faculty member at Drury, packed the children's belongings, and flew to Quito, the capital of Ecuador. Quito is nestled in the mountain valley and almost on the equator. The valley is surrounded by the Andes mountain peaks that rise to altitudes above 20,000 feet. The terrain was different from anything I'd ever seen. Initially, I felt that we had arrived on another planet, but the region is so beautiful that it took no time at all to fall in love with the environment and its climate of perpetual spring. From Quito, one can leave a snow-capped mountaintop and arrive four hours later at a coastal plain on the Pacific Ocean. While the mountain climate is temperate, the coastal area is extremely hot, perfect for producing the country's enormous supply of bananas. My job was to set up a biochemistry laboratory at the University Central. Unlike the expectations of punctuality and commitment so common in American universities, no one in Ecuador was overly concerned if neither students nor faculty showed up for class. The critical need to improve living conditions, medical care, dentistry, engineering, and architecture in Ecuador was the reason the United States provided Fulbright lecturers to assist the country. I took that responsibility seriously, and eventually my students did too. In this period of time, Student activism and protests were having a major impact on the operation of all Ecuadorian universities. Small but visible groups of communist students sometimes behaved in hostile ways. Our family life in Ecuador was as close to ideal as it could ever be. We moved into a comfortable house. Anne and Charles were enrolled in private schools. We had a housekeeper, a laundress, a cook, and a babysitter. On the morning our family left Quito, all of my students were at the airport at 7.30 a.m. to say goodbye. Our family had a truly wonderful season of focusing on one another in Ecuador. There was no television. We had breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. We spent hours in the parks exploring the beautiful countryside. Our house at home was somewhat similar to my childhood in Cuba. Dorothy and I agreed it would be wonderful to maintain this lifestyle with the children when we returned to the United States. Our intent was good, but probably not destined to succeed. In less than a week of our arrival back to Springfield, we had returned to a typically American lifestyle. The children wanted to spend more time with their friends, they didn't want to remain in the house after dinner, and the television was interesting all over again. I returned to Ecuador alone in the summer of 1968 for a shorter Fulbright lectureship at Guayaquil University. The State Department offered an additional five-month appointment in Peru, but by this time the demands of my department chairmanship at Drury were too heavy for me to be away. Drury was undertaking a major curriculum review, and I was committed to the concept of preserving academic standards. I wanted to be engaged in curriculum development and in faculty discussion that would shape the academic program. Without a doubt, my commitment to high standards caused my colleagues to consider my potential to become the vice president for academic affairs. I was appointed to the position in 1973. I was 45 years old and totally committed to my work as dean. I stayed connected to the classroom and to laboratory research at Drury. I had no hint of impending illness, 
other than an odd incident at a faculty meeting where I suddenly felt faint and short of breath. Arterial heart disease revealed itself in the middle of a frightening night in May when both Dorothy and I realized that I was truly ill. An angiogram revealed that triple bypass surgery was needed. Between 1976 and 1990, I required four angioplasty procedures and had a second bypass surgery in 1990. Following the first bypass in May 1976, I was still recovering from a very invasive operation when Drury's president was killed in a car train collision in Kansas. The college was shocked by the tragedy, but there were students enrolled and a school to run, and the loss did not change the truth of that. Hardly three months from an open-heart surgery, I became acting president and held the office for more than a year. My job was to retain the good things that had been put in place to restore goodwill among the faculty. It actually was not difficult. There was a spirit of community as faculty aligned to face the future. I held the office until the presidential search committee named the new president. In 1978, I spent a summer as a senior research fellow at the University of Durham, the third oldest university in England. In the laboratory there, I researched biochemical problems in living cells. I continued my study of sugars and abnormal metabolism, but also extended the work to cystic fibrosis, a disease of genetic origin. In England, I found myself becoming absorbed in the beauty of the countryside, and I walked along green pathways every day, fascinated by the great traditions of church power, royalty, and aristocracy. With thoughts of earlier times and important connections with students, I decided to leave the dean's office and return to my classroom and laboratory. I enjoyed being an administrator for the many years that I sat in that chair, but I was just as happy to take my clean white lab coat off its hook and return to my true life's mission. In the fall of 1984, I received another Fulbright and lectured again in Quito during the fall semester. After this international summer, I chose to remain on campus, closer to home, and in some proximity to my cardiologist. I taught chemistry continuously in the Lay Science Building until my retirement in 1996. In the years since my heart surgery, I do all I can to maintain my health. I exercise, watch my diet, and faithfully take prescribed medication. I am proceeding to live life at its fullest, aware of the need to remain aware but not experiencing trouble. In 1990, my mother passed away. Until that happened, I could not even imagine how it would feel to grieve for her. It was the worst sadness of my life. My father died seven years later, and I miss his presence as well but I am happy to know that he was proud of my profession and my achievement. My life mission has been to teach, and through my work at Drury, I accomplished the dream of my life. I love sharing the knowledge and the personal exchange that results in learning. I like students, and I like being in the classroom. My desire was to help all my students, not just the ones who are the most able. And as dean, I was truly interested in the welfare of the faculty members at Drury, not just those perfectly suited for the job. Because I took my teaching responsibility seriously, I continued to be a student myself. Show me a teacher who has stopped learning, 
and I will show you an ineffective teacher. I am sure that I think less about the results of my research than I do about the accomplishments of my students who have become scientists, professors, physicians. I love hearing from former students, and am always happy to know that graduates in many professions attribute success to their dreary education. Being a good parent was as important to me as being an able professor, but there was times when I found parenting more complicated than teaching. Anne, Charles, and Philip are very different from one another. In terms of persistence and their life accomplishments, I admire each of them tremendously. Anne is a renowned radiologist at the top of her profession. Charles is a professor of humanities and philosophy at Stephen F. Austin University in Nagadaches, Texas. He is a true academic. His students benefit from his fine mind and endless pursuit of knowledge and understanding. Charles will always be an excellent teacher because he will always be an excellent student. Philip is a professional chemist. He owns and operates Phoenix Manufacturing Company in Springfield. The company makes detergents, resins, and other products for industrial use. After working in this field for a number of years, Philip made the leap to private business ownership and is now responsible for every aspect of the business operation. Philip's heart of gold made him a truly special child and now an attentive and loving father. Dorothy and I live in our family home on South Broadway. The neighborhood has matured. It is peaceful, beautiful, and friendly. Our house is filled with many family pictures and mementos of our time in Spain and Ecuador. Dorothy has always been an excellent cook, and her green thumb surrounds us now with all of her growing shrubs and flowers. Our house has a happy spirit. We enjoy knowing that friends and family recall parties and lively conversations that have taken place in the house. Our children come home, as they always have, for birthdays and special occasions, and best of all, we see our grandchildren weekly. When I first arrived in Springfield, there were very few Hispanics, and I was made extremely welcome. Cuba was not yet involved in any mass migration into the United States, and Havana was known as a lively and beautiful destination for tourists. As Castro began to reveal the malignant nature of his dictatorship, the American view of their southern neighbor clouded. The 92 miles that separated the United States and Cuba became more of a threat than a convenience. I am sorry to say that in more recent years in Springfield, I have seen the ugly appearance of discrimination and prejudice. I find this very disturbing. If I have a message about racial differences, it would be this. Other than Native Americans, all Americans are immigrants. They must realize that they should treat each other as they would have wanted their ancestors to be treated. There are two essential tools for holding our world together, understanding and acceptance. Our humanity to each other is key to peaceful living. The lack of it causes irrevocable loss. We must always grow in wisdom and learn to be forgiving of each other's enormous shortcomings. Finding our similarities must take priority, even over the important preservation of cultural identities.
This is an edited version of Padron's story. You can read each story in its entirety at thelibrary.org or by clicking the link in the description of this post. The storykeeper for Jorge Padron is Gail Boutwell. Music is Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Colin Carr at freemusicarchive.org under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivative, 3.0 United States license. Story excerpts edited and read by Diana Dudenhafer. Mm-hmm.